I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Unnecessarily angry goal celebrations, the curious characters of a textbook pitch invasion, and the perennial problem with YouTube football compilations. Our star guest, comedian Mark Watson, steers us through the very first edition of Mesut Harland Dicks. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Access to The Athletic is just £1 a week. Get all our great content on the app and listen to podcasts like this ad-free. Go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Yes, welcome to episode 43 of Football Clichés. We're doing something slightly different today. First of all, with me is Nick Miller, a rather more familiar voice, first of all. Nick, are you excited about this new format that I haven't told everyone about yet? It's a, a format that was only revealed to me yesterday, so I, I'm really going into this fresh. So I haven't had time of- to overthink it, you know, which I think was yeah. going to make things really instinctive. And- oh, I have. Yeah. I have. 90% of my uh, mental effort has gone into the name, uh, the other 10% into the the actual material itself. And to provide much of that material, we have a comedian, novelist, and more crucially for our purposes, a man who combines a large Twitter following with a willingness to reply to his actual DMs. (laughs) It's Mark Watson. (laughs) Your booking policy is just people who are looking at their DMs, basically. (laughs) Yes, at any time. I've booked comedy shows on that basis. It's surprising <laughs> how it divides the community, isn't it? Yeah, it, it feels weird. Um, I mean, you're, you're our first, essentially our first star guest of any of any definition. I feel like we should have a small studio crowd kind of warmly applauding you on as you come on, as you nod kind of politely at them. I should have been paraded last week, really, Yes. when it was announced. Uh, you'll have to make do with just me and Nick Miller smiling at you politely over Zoom. I hope that's all right. That's fine. We can maybe separately record a bit of me doing keepy uppies on the pitch or something like that. For you <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'd like that. That would that would be a, a truly classy touch. But we, we start with a with a more traditional segment. This is the adjudication panel. I've got some I've got some delicious stuff for you today. It dawned on me this weekend, Nick, that there is a distinct soundtrack to football in 2020, and it comes courtesy of Gary Neville. Vardy looking for the hat trick, playing on the shoulder. Garcia's yes. fouled him. It's brilliant from Pogba. Oh, yes. It's a penalty. Well, uh, an equaliser wouldn't be unjust. Could be a penalty, you know. We'll have a look at it here now. Mm. Mane, lovely turn. Oh, he's uh, sent tumbling. Mares Could be in. Down he goes. Anthony Taylor. Points for the penalty. Firmino. Nick, this is... I mean, I suppose a kind of cultural offshoot of of the more famous goalgasm of the early 2010s, but this is appears to have a more of enduring appeal. There's a lot going on in that noise. It, there, there's there's so many layers to unravel. I think. Well, I think what I particularly like about it is in in sort of complete opposition to the goalgasm. It's so low key. Like for Sky, who you know usually hype everything up to the balls, then this is. It's it's more the sound of like an old lady seeing someone fall over in the street, <laughs> rather than rather than the you know the the, the noise of someone who is signalling a dramatic event in a Premier League football game. Mark, you've you've probably noticed this yourself, but um, um that very particular sound that Neville makes when a penalty may or may not be about to be awarded is incredibly similar to the opening title sequences of Twenty Four Hours in Police Custody on Channel Four, as you're about to find out. It's exactly what I was thinking. Anthony Taylor points for the penalty. <laughs> In summary, that that laboured uh, montage I've put together there is it's, it's very ominous. Like um, I, f- I feel it's it's now got to the point where Neville is now deciding whether penalties are happening or not simply through that noise. I, 
I was just going to say, it's almost like you now listen for the groan rather than for the uh, <laughs> rather than look for the uh, spot being pointed out, isn't it? I'm, I've obviously heard Neville do that, but uh, you've really presented an incredible amount of evidence there. I wasn't aware <laughs> of how much of the thing it was until that. Uh, and you're right, it is like the sort of, um, it's like a death rattle or something. If you're watching your team defend and Neville makes that noise, then it almost overrides VAR, basically. It's over. I mean, there could be certain circumstances, uh, Nick, where the, oh, begins outside the box and therefore, you know, it's, it's, it's just a free kick, surely. So maybe IFAB need to get into this. And actually, it, it does make me wonder, does this influence VAR? And a secondary point, do VAR have the commentary on? I was just thinking I that. I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't think they do. But I mean, that, that, not a good idea. that would be ludicrous, surely, if they did. That, there's all kinds of, you know, possibilities for influencing and, you know, nobbling of VAR by unscrupulous commentators who, you know, are partisan. So yeah, but, I mean, I assume they assume they don't. It's it's kind of the com- become the commentary equivalent of players kind of putting their hands up when they've very obviously fouled someone. I, I also think it would be hard on them to have the commentary on because they'd regularly hear people saying, "I mean, what is VAR even for?" <laughs> <laughs> They'd be sitting there thinking, well, we're doing our best here. This is a flawed system. <laughs> this is my job. Yeah, yeah. If you could just not, you know, undermine my entire existence while, while I work, that yeah, would imagine be great. taking three minutes to make a decision and then the first thing you hear is Carragher saying, that is absolutely stupid. <laughs> I, I, I could only dream of him appraising my work in, in such terms. Oh. As always, here's Piers Morgan on Football Clichés once again. On Monday, he was on Good Morning Britain, Mark, shoehorning a piece of footballese into the most unlikely circumstances. And here's the point, Kevin. He's no longer a working royal. He doesn't want to do the wet Wednesdays in Stoke, visiting old people's homes. He's still he wants a to live of the, royal the life of a celebrity in California. Good luck to him. This was Good Morning Britain discussing Prince Harry's entire existence, which I imagine is something they do every day, Monday to Friday. Um, I, I, I'd never heard the the wet Wednesday night in Stoke situation, which which essentially outgrown football from my perspective, but I'd never actually heard it in an everyday context. I don't know if non-football people recognise the Wet Wednesday in Stoke shorthand as much as Piers Morgan seems to think they do. Well, they didn't. The evidence suggests they don't because um, for about for hours afterwards, he had loads of angry and presumably unwitting people from Stoke tweeting him saying, what have you got against the weather in Stoke? As if, as, as if there's one, that's something you could ever have an opinion on and two, something you could possibly control. But I suspect it's probably not the first time people from Stoke have angrily tweeted Piers Morgan. I feel like if you lived in Stoke, you would be aware of the Wet Wednesday whether you're a football fan or not but obviously it hasn't found its way to I, I mean it is true with Harry that he's, he's sort of as his time in the Royals has gone on he's, he's more and more reluctant to come off the bench for 20 minutes he's, he's, you know, he was, it was one of those like either give me game time or let me go situations for the Royals Nick what what is the um, the wet Wednesday in Stoke situation for a working Royal like what is the kind of really sort of mundane tasks they're going to have to go through they're, they're probably above opening supermarkets aren't they the royals but it'll be that kind of thing that the, the sort of sort of gig that you give to a you give to a minor royal rather than yeah i reckon it's opening dogs. civic buildings and stuff like that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and stuff like that those are the those are the on the, a wednesday yeah that's Stoke. like being forced to play in a reserve game because you were poor at the weekend sort of situation. It doesn't even make sense in a non-football context because it, it, in while it's a tired old cliche, in football it works because Stoke are uh, w- w- had the reputation of being an unpleasant team to play against and because it's on a Wednesday, the implication is that you're having to make a long and arduous journey home that you will only, you know, reach the end of at 3am but you've really played at the weekend you're tired it evokes a very particular type of away fixture yeah but if if you're just uh, what, what was the thing he was talking about there visiting a, a care home or something like that i mean but arguably that's more convenient on a weekday rather than uh, at the weekend so yeah you won't you won't be getting home at 2am on a bus will you no no, you're just you're you're presumably being driven there in a in a pleasant car, and you you're um you know getting home at a reasonable hour. Well, I'm delighted. I'm delighted we've kind of put paid to to that one. Perhaps the world isn't quite ready for for Wet Wednesdays in Stoke, but there will be a time. On to perhaps more refined efforts to transfer the language of football into wider society. This, of course, was Deputy Chief Medical Officer Professor Jonathan Van Tam on Monday. This quote has done the rounds, but I I just feel like we should listen to it one more time. Because almost all of the vaccines coming also target the S protein. So this is like, um, you know, getting to the end of a playoff final. It's gone to penalties. The first player goes up, scores the goal. 
You haven't won the cup yet, but what it does is it tells you that the goalkeeper can be beaten. And that's where we are today, that first sign. <laughs> Mark, I mean, my first observation here is, is, is that playoff final is a nice touch. That, that instantly got him into football fans' good bits because he went, he went, you know, he, he scratched under the surface there straight away. He, he really did. And for people like me who support a, a, anyone below the Premier League, playoff final is shorthand for sort of as big as things get, basically. The highest <laughs> stake things get, as big as a pandemic, basically. Mm. But then he's on less sure ground when he starts talking about demonstrating the goalie can be beaten because mm. in a shootout, the goalie normally will be, but both goalkeepers you would expect to be beaten at some point. <laughs> so. I didn't feel like it quite hung together there. I hadn't seen that before. and But as you say, my main observation is also talking about winning the cup is a bit peculiar in the context. I, you do get a trophy, but it's not. I feel like it, I don't think it completely came off. But no, he's it, technically correct. So you have to give him that. You do get a trophy. I, I've, I've, <laughs> um, I've fled two or three stadiums before watching the other team lift a playoff trophy in my time. But yeah, to, to be fair to him, any attempt to get the reasonably niche football terminology into what must be quite a high-pressure gig, uh, deserves credit, I think. You won't see Witty reach for... You won't talk about the Rouse Cup anytime soon, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> Nick, uh, listener Sam points out that um, he's a bit worried if this also means that taking a vaccine is like a lottery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It implies there should be an element of tension about this as well, about the kind of... The, the idea that you go in to have this vaccine, which... Sh- like a long it, walk as well before you do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A long, lonely walk. <laughs> yeah, decide where, where you're going to be injected and don't change your mind, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, everyone else that's infected is meant to line up on the halfway line holding hands. We're not really meant to do that these days either, are we? <laughs> With their arms over the shoulders. Why do they do that? Nobody knows. It's just a thing that people in football do and then they, everyone else does it. That wasn't always a thing, was it? There must... Someone must have started that. I don't remember <laughs> in those Italian ninety ones. I don't think they're all. There was a particular formation you stood in for shootouts. That I think that's no. come on later. It feels. Yeah. It feels like that's more of a thing. Clear. It feels like that's more of a thing for the people on the bench, the coaches, and the the non penalty yeah. takers. Presumably because they just don't know what else to do with themselves. Nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> At World Cup set, yeah. just get silly because you've got literally about a squad of thirty lined up with the physios and everybody. It just goes on and on. But this this particular practice, Nick, appears to have pervaded the rest of the world. On the very same day, on Monday, uh, in Italy, leading virologist, which is a word, a phrase I've just wanted to use for a long time, Roberta Burioni, which is not a made-up name, gave an Italian perspective on this. He said, "In football terms, we are ten minutes into the second half and we're winning three 0 It sort of feels like football is used being used as a sort of dumbing down. Um, process like the world can't understand this is 90% effective uh, it, f- it feels like that's relatively clear and then they feel the need to kind of go alright these proles are really too thick to understand the ni- that 90% is quite likely so let's throw in some football here as well although in the case of the Italians the Italians have, have always done this haven't they they've got a way of just kind of threading football you wouldn't be amazed to see a government official say something like yeah, I feel as if we were playing with wing backs but then one of them was sent off or kind of <laughs> policy I, I'm looking forward to just how complex and how labyrinthine these um, these analogies become I should point out that of course he didn't say it in English he said siamo decimo de secondo tempo estiamo vincendo 3 a 0 which sounds much nicer than Van Tam's. I, I think Van Tam is a Burton Albion fan, I'm told. I, have, I found no evidence for this on Google. Just at least three people told me this on Twitter. And, uh, That's so, not you'd make up, I don't think. No, no, no. So I put him in hardy soul territory already. So, yeah, uh, that, that sounds like a man I would trust with uh, the medical future of this nation. My only worry about this vaccine is 3-0 is a difficult lead to defend, mm. isn't it? That analogy alone exactly matches the 2005 Champions League final when Liverpool were 3-0 down up until the ninth or 10th minute of the second half, depending on how you interpret these things. So uh, it's a very ominous thing for him to say. I assume he isn't a Milan fan, or perhaps he's an Inter fan, and he's uh, and he's subtly digging it at the rivals. But, yeah, um, Liverpool have taken a large viral load in that first half. <laughs> I just... <laughs> The idea that um, the idea that there could be like a third wave of the coronavirus and Clive Tilsley says, hello, hello, here we go. <laughs> yeah, they always um, score. <laughs> off topic very slightly, but presumably I'm not the only one that when, whenever they see the name Van Tam, Jonathan Van Tam, they think of the guy from Queer Eye rather than, you know, the, 
who I think is Van Ness. No, Van just me. Very anyway. different uh, field of operation. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I was so confused when he was um, spouting off about the uh, the vaccine that's going to save us all. In the same way, you'd be surprised <laughs> if Pierre Van Hoydonk took a briefing. It's a sore subject for me, Forest fan. So ooh, no. <laughs> it's twenty years. Yeah, twenty years on, I haven't recovered. I did say to him, if there's one thing you don't do, please don't mention Pierre. Van Hoydonk. <laughs> He's broken it within the first fifteen minutes of this podcast. You never know when uh, you touch a nerve with, with football. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. But onto, onto, the, onto the, the, main, the main event of this, this podcast, the, the sheer reason why you are here, Mark Watson, which is... and I, I've been struggling with how to describe this format to our listeners because um, it may or may not happen again, and I just want them to, to get on board with it straight away. It is essentially match of the day twos, too good, too bad, meets Desert Island Discs. And uh, I struggled with the name, and the only thing I could come up with was Mesut Harland Dicks. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know if that is struggling. I think that's as, as good as it's going to get, basically. I think it's a travesty if this um, segment idea doesn't survive, in fact because you want to be using that more than once, surely. I, I certainly hope so. So huge pressure on you, because if it doesn't work today, we'll never get to do it again. And as we run out of ideas, this is going to be terrible news for this podcast. I feel like I'm um, taking the long walk to penalty spot, in fact, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. But the format is very simple. You're going to tell us three things you absolutely adore about football or miss about football or hope for the future about football. And then three things you hate about football, three things that you are happy to see consigned to the history of, of the game. We're going to kick off with, uh, with a, a really nice one, actually. Um, you have a huge affection, it seems, for angry celebrations like Tamuri Ketsbaya laying into an advertising hoarding. What is it about this particular type of goal celebration that gets you going? Tamuri Ketsbaya is the one probably most people remember because, you know, it's that iconic sight of him smashing into the uh, advertising hoardings. I feel like I've, I can have only ever seen that a couple of times, but I feel like I can immediately see it when I close my eyes. That, yeah, that's a classic, but it is a whole genre of celebrations where people, um, I mean, Balotelli comes to mind in recent times. He obviously a bloke with quite a few demons and stuff, but I remember him in the Euros scoring a brilliant goal and then just standing there with his arms folded, completely still, just looking really, really annoyed that it got him. I enjoy it when a uh, teammates try and mob a player, but he like shakes them off like it's rugby, like he's handing them off. I always feel really bad for the teammates, though, because it, it implies that you know, outside of that moment, they just don't like them. Yeah, or it certainly implies that you, you're not in this goal. You don't take any credit for it. So, like, you get away from me. I've seen players pursue a goal scorer like almost all over the pitch to try and celebrate and um, if you're a manager you must be thinking this is energy that we don't need to be using up really <laughs> I think I, it, it's always amused me because there's a lot of macho uh, like posturing and stuff in football and so and a lot of that stuff you can get away with like squaring up to each other and all this business but it is a real stretch to to pretend you're not happy about a goal because you can't <laughs> want to basically do that and occasionally when someone refuses to celebrate against their former club you you, you sort of buy that it's well they must still be pleased with the goal but you sort of understand all right that's a polite thing to do but there's almost no context in which it's it's acceptable to not to be angry you've scored because you, sh you should have just booted it over the bar or something <laughs> you, you feel like often it's still the contract dispute or something or the fans are have been giving you stick or it, it, the the um the import of it is there you go I've made my point, but especially if you're a non-fan of that team, you normally don't know that stuff. So you're just watching in the pub, thinking, "Why is he? Why is he so cross? That looked like a really nice goal." Well, that's right. I mean, there are, there are occasionally kind of backstories to these things. Yeah. There aren't just inexplicably angry people. Um, there was uh, David Ginola who who ripped his shirt off after scoring for Aston Villa uh, after John Gregory accused him of carrying a bit of timber. Nick, whenever I hear that phrase, all I can think of is John Gregory. He brought that into my <laughs> consciousness, so I thank him very much for that. When Mark suggests that you're seeing this more and more, players who are kind of sort of kind of passive aggressively celebrating goals I feel like it extended even more so to managers who who almost now completely do not celebrate goals and I, I wonder if it's this is a deliberate kind of piece of body language that they do now yeah it's almost uh, kind of it's, be it's become performative the only person I don't think that is true of is Marcello Bielsa who just seems to view these kind of 11 men running around on the pitch as counters that you know that move around and shift the ball around to his kind of whims. And then when they score a goal, it's simply a, a, a function. He doesn't celebrate because he already knew the goal was coming. It's yeah, yeah. Well, he, um, I, I was at the, do you remember that absolutely mad playoff semi-final against Derby 
yeah. a couple of seasons ago. I was at that game and one of the goals, I can't remember which one it was, but Bielsa celebrated it by quietly pacing from one side of his technical area to the other while <laughs> Ellen Road was kind of, it, you know, it's, a, it's a, some parts of it are a rickety old place, Ellen Road, and elements of, of the stand were literally shaking as you know, everyone else went completely mad and, and there was there was Bielsa just kind of quietly pacing from side to side to celebrate this incredibly important goal. I agree. A lot of it does seem performative. It seems as if the manager is conscious of the cameras on him. It's as if they're sort of conveying, yep, there's the goal as we planned it. That's the yes, goal we yes, expected. Exactly. Just, that's, what I, that's what I have expected all along and if anything, I'd be furious if that hadn't happened. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's, it's a physical manifestation of the story you always used to hear about old Jose Mourinho, sort of version 1.0, where all his players said, yeah, this, he basically basically predicted every game and how it would go and that's how it turned out and it was bizarre so yeah. I wonder if it's just him just saying yeah I'm basically in control I'm not massively surprised my team have gone 1-0 up you sometimes and see what they do you have younger managers who try to do that but they're not quite there yet like you'll often see Arteta do a sort of angry face when they score but then he does also punch the punch the air and punch <laughs> it on the side as well it's, yeah you just can't contain yourself at that, at that um, like, tender age I'm not happy I'm, <laughs> I acknowledge the goal has gone in but at the same time you're not going to see me smile because I'm not mm. soft <laughs> uh, so that was, that was a, a curious first piece of footballing joy from you because there's, there's you know an ambiguous one perhaps uh, what have you got for us next uh, this is a more yeah I, I think I like that because it's just a, such a quirky thing about football this is a more a joy that kind of even non-football fans get behind which is this is more a nostalgic thing I think stupid sponsors <laughs> sponsors that either look silly on the shirt or that just you're not convinced that a company of that magnitude can afford to sponsor a football club. <laughs> it's, it is a bit of a nostalgic thing because I was thinking recently about my Bristol City, who I support, having the shirt looks great this year, but it does have a, a betting company in, enormous across the middle of it. And then I thought about how it feels like almost all championship sides I see have got some sort of, and if it's not a, if it's not definitely a betting website, it's some unscrupulous looking name that probably is gambling in some way. And I'm not... I'm not particularly anti-gambling. I'd sort of go in for an accumulator like uh, like most people sort of sneakily do. It's not really a moral stance. It's just a bit, of, it's a bit of a shame that it feels like quite large conglomerate sponsor, even second or third tier teams. So I look back on the times when in my, in my youth, uh, City was sponsored by, the first sponsor I remember, my first show was Hire Right, which was a, a van hire company that was literally outside the stadium it was, it was basically <laughs> they were just the business next door to Ashton Gate and then as it went on it was like a, a burglar alarm company I suppose we had Blackthorn Cider was quite a bit but still like a very very noticeably local company that's an interesting one because I mean you, you say it's not always a kind of a moral issue sometimes it's just a question of taste like what sort of product stroke company do I want sponsoring my team and exactly there is something satisfying about booze or something like newcastle yes Canada, it is it is satisfying United shirt. you feel as if it has some relationship with the people the fans that are <laughs> buying that shirt and then our rivals bristol rovers had to, like uh, a window company uh, like that sort of thing it feels like the era of basically like crappy one-man businesses being able to sponsor an entire <laughs> football club may have passed i i do worry nick that that shirt sponsors i mean there's obviously it's, it's just money grabbing of course that's the whole point of it but i worry nick that shirt sponsors are just getting blander and blander and more corporate i in in if you take all the gambling companies out of the out of the equation which is doesn't leave you with much left in the premier league you're you're left with companies that i just don't know what they do i, I don't know what it is they provide i'd have you have to read their wikipedia page for a good five minutes before figuring it out this is one of the very many reasons why i appreciate uh, west brom being sponsored by ideal boilers <laughs> which there's the, the, there's the obvious Boilerman mascot, which is uh, a character very close to my heart for kind of for for various comedic and financial reasons because I wrote a book about mascots, <laughs> um, but also it just harks back to like you were saying, Mark, that era where teams were sponsored by just some business that you thought we were around the corner. Now, unless, uh, admittedly, I don't have my thumb particularly firmly on the boiler scene, but I'd never heard of Ideal Boilers before they started to, uh, sponsoring West Brom. So that really kind of, that it, it evoked something very nostalgic. Was it West Brom that used to have a no smoking as their sponsors? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, feel yeah, like yeah. I can picture Cyril Regis or someone in there. There's been amazing, that's the other thing. The days when like the league cut was just sponsored by milk—it's hard to sort of <laughs> believe now. Actually, I mean, um, this this may be 
I, I do worry if this is just me disengaging with football very, very gradually. But this season is probably the longest I've taken to realise who the sponsors are of one of the domestic cup competitions. And I, I only found out on about Tuesday night this week that Papa John's are now sponsoring the EFL trophy. Well, I worry that I, I don't know the sponsors of cup competitions anymore. That's I my fear. I also found that out on Tuesday night, I think. And uh, I because we're now in the championship rather than league we, we won that competition five years ago I was there in fact uh, mm. my girlfriend and I were there and I'm just I'm really grateful we won it when it was Johnson's paint which, which <laughs> you know sounds sort of all right I don't think you want to win yeah. the John's really I, I you know like any lower league fan it was bad enough having to say yeah I'm going to Wembley but and then explain what the Johnson's paint trophy was but I wouldn't be wanting to have that conversation about something called the Papa John's <laughs> but also also with Johnson's paint you can shorten it to JPT and it's you can sort of divorce it from the sort That's of crap right. company that it is but Papa John's you're not you're not getting anywhere with that. I think that is what we did as well. Yeah, uh, we won we won league 1 and the JPT it, it meant for, at least for non-football fans it sounded like a, a big deal. <laughs> we got to the semi-finals of um the the league cup a couple of years ago in that like, fairy tale run beat Man United. Uh, so the club got a lot of attention then, and I got a um, I got a gig doing some sponsorship online content where I got to go to the training ground and chat to some of them. Uh, that was paid for by Carabao, and it was only in the course of that I discovered what what they were. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was only in early stages of the of the chat with the, their people when someone said, "Have you had Carabao?" By the way, I had to sort of backtrack quite quickly. I don't think so because I. I don't, at this stage, know who you are. As a result of this conversation, I formulated the theory that perhaps when it comes to the shirts of your own team or the shirts of any team, you want a a humble product, something specific, something visceral, something that you you know could hold in your hands, something you know something you can imagine. But when yeah. it comes to the, kind of the level of cup competitions, you want something fairly vague, generic, and all encompassing, like milk. Just the the concept of milk sponsoring a trophy. I never thought of it as just. Uh, the idea that you could have milk delivered or milk in bottles or or the the actual the actual liquid itself i just the, the concept of milk it was yeah, what somehow i wanted it the milk cup suddenly you know it sort of sounds right doesn't it but in a way that um it was only not that long ago i found myself googling rumbelows because i was having chances <laughs> like this and i thought i'm not nobody knows what rumbelows was actually if you look at like rumbelows i doubt littlewoods is still going is it yeah. like you almost wonder whether some of these companies did overspend in the 80s. It's <laughs> hard to think of a company that still exists that did sponsor a cup. I suppose we still got milk. Yeah. Has anyone heard anything of Zenith Data Systems recently? Another good example. <laughs> yeah. Them yeah. and Simod. Poor old Simod. It's funny, isn't it? It's, it's like, obviously, if you're the league or whoever, if you're the organisers and you're looking for one for a sponsor, like, you're just looking for the money. There can't be a conversation where you go, the only problem is this sounds really silly. You just don't have that option. Yeah, yeah I know. And you, yeah. you, you have to talk to um, the the people who agree sponsorship deals for American sports stadiums for that kind of thing. I, I don't know which team it is, but the only possible reason for someone choosing to be sponsored by Dick's Sporting Goods is for the massive sacks of cash that they dropped off at the venue. Not for one minute did they th- stop and think, is this going to make us sound ridiculous as they kind of, you know, dove into the cash like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, I suppose at, at the level of stadiums, you, you console yourself thinking, well, no one's going to actually say that, so maybe we can get yeah. away with it. Oh, completely. It's, it's, it's the freest money imaginable. I, I, there, there is always this kind of flimsy kind of moral objection to big clubs kind of selling their soul when it comes to, to naming rights of stadiums, Mark. And I just think, it's one, it's not going to matter. As you say, they're just going to carry on calling it Goodison Park or whatever. And and secondly, it's money for literally nothing. Yeah. Literally nothing. It's hard to say that it's any more morally dubious than selling off any other part of the club's heritage, really, once we've gone down this rabbit hole. And you're right. Like I, I'm pretty sure if it if our ground became Argos Ashton Gate, everyone would, everyone would still say Ashton Gate, but we'd have 80 million quid to spend on, on a centre forward. So, you know. <laughs> the, exactly. That's a, that's a fairly optimistic attempt at guessing Argus's marketing budget. It is, and but, also guessing how much that sort of money does go into players, player purchases as well. But nonetheless, yeah. The fans always think that every, because we've played football manager, you always assume that if someone writes us a cheque for £20 million, that literally is money for a left back. But uh, maybe more complicated than that. I think the worst case scenario in, in, in that, situation would be that 
the fans would just start simply calling your stadium the Argos. Like, you know, they would start owning it as a kind of organic thing. Still got a bit bland to it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Again, you just don't want it to be any something rubbish. I like the idea of if someone is sponsored, some stadium is sponsored by Argos, of opposition fans turning up with very small blue pens to wave at them in a a kind of taunting (laughs) manner. Oh, that'd be great. That's the sort of thing you do on the last day of the season when you sometimes get fancy dress. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of stadiums, that brings us on to the third and final joy of yours for this week, Mark. Tell us about it. Yes, talk about pitch invasion. Mm. Um, I think now this is obviously there have to be some caveats here because uh, there are health and safety concerns around it. <laughs> but um, I think to, to be specific, I, I think the sort I'm quite um, I'm quite sentimental about the FA Cup and, and cup competition in general. We'll probably come on to that. And um, so I think my my favourite again, it's a, it's not a, a thing you never see anymore, but it's more difficult because the way stadiums are designed now. But the um, the sight of people charging onto the pitch at the end of a, a cup upset basically is one of my favourite things in football. And I, yeah, I've been part of pitch divisions where it's like celebrating a promotion or, you know, just the end of the season. And that's not quite the same because if it's like, if it's certainly with a promotion match, you sort of know you, you, a, a pitch invasion that you know is going to happen doesn't quite count for me. It's the one where, you know, it's the one where it's, and also, I mean, I don't necessarily like it when it's to celebrate a goal either because the sort of people that run onto the pitch for a goal, I associate with like, a certain amount of twattery. It's that very specific thing when the final whistle blows and it's the 80s and it's one of those ones like Sutton v Coventry and immediately uh, immediately the players are being sort of carried off by people that have gone crazy or Wrexham v Arsenal. Actually, most cup upsets you can remember from that period, there's just loads of crazy people on the pitch almost before the ref's blown up. I think that's a real... I don't know if it's... It's not purely a British thing, but it's a very FA Cup thing that yes it's like uh, people that will never normally get to celebrate anything just charging onto the field as, as in most things crowd related Nick um, you need a minimum number of people to get involved in the in the phenomenon for it to be a, a visual spectacle um, <laughs> if it is only one or two people you want them to be naked and then therefore we are not allowed to see them on TV but if, you, if you're going to have a proper pitch invasion you, you're going to need a good portion of the attending crowd to participate yeah the, the ones i always used to like were you you, you had the, the the very keen people running on and then at some point the people who were right at the back of the stand would kind of very almost uh, like carefully make their way onto the pitch because they've they've thought well everyone else is on there so we might as well stroll down as well this was me actually last time i was at a pitch <laughs> uh, when we beat man united in the uh, in those caribou quarterfinals but again oh, I, right, I was yeah. miles up in the stand and I, I was looking down on it, thinking I'd love, I'd love to be in this, but it would involve getting behind, like squeezing past people, going, "Sorry, I'm just going to invade." The, <laughs> you know, it feels like you've got to be close enough when the ref blows the whistle. Really, you can't wander down there after ten minutes. I think says there are a couple of elements I think are, are key for these things. One of which you mentioned uh, slightly before there, Mark, which was players being carried shoulder high, preferably yeah. against their will. I think they've been uh, swept up in a in a tide of kind of joyous drunk people. And then as a sort of addition to that is those joyous drunk people trying to remove items of their player's kit, forcibly yeah, is, removed. Is that more of a continental thing? I feel like that's, I feel like that's more of a sort of Serie A um, staying up on the final day situation where, where within five minutes, you know, one, the star striker is just simply down to his wide front. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I think that your classic pitch invasion is, is a, ideally a non-league team. And so you've got a bloke that's basically just a farmer or something being like... <laughs> thrown around by people and you can see on his face his main thing is just like what the hell are you doing get away (laughs) obviously there are so many layers to this we are officially supposed to disapprove of it and then when they happen even those people say actually that's quite nice given the context of it and the unlikely nature of the victory and stuff but the people I really enjoy in Pitch Invasions uh, Mark are the kind of the the really innocent kids and the and the kind of the elderly fans who who wander onto the pitch and the, the, the look on their face is simply, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah, I can't I'm, believe I'm allowed here. I'm here. This is great. So we're doing this, are we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. And that's why it's that's why it's special fun when it's um, a proper spontaneous, like a last minute. That, that game against Man United was an injury time winner. The, another one I can remember, Ashton Gate, was a, a playoff semi, which again was decided injury time. Something about the, if you can see it coming for half an hour, again, I've even been at matches where like it's a promotion game or something and they'll start saying, please stay off the playing surface at the end, mm. which A, mm. makes it much more likely people will think of it. But um, <laughs> again, B, if, if it's signalled, it's not quite the same. But yeah, it feels like in the 80s, especially with standing uh, fans, stand, with terraces, you know, you'd be... Just that 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 image of the uh, the ref about to blow the, the 
top flight team know they're about to be giant killed the fans are pressing him ready to go there's something very special about that I think that Hereford Newcastle won the uh, Radford's Rocket game every time you see footage of that you just see just like people with 70s hair pouring onto the pitch that's the other Mm -hmm. thing not just chairing off the winners but the big name players having to Try and pick their way through all these. Oh, it's one, I, yeah. I always wonder how terrible that must have must to be. be absolutely just, you know, to run that <laughs> joyful gauntlet and hope that nobody stops. And you know, usually it's quite well-meaning. You don't often see sort of fans stopping and sort of aying in their face. But, no, but um, if anything, you, you quite often see them like if you're that pitching commiserating. Bit, them. Yeah, you're still thinking, oh, <laughs> Lammy, that that is that famous bloke from Arsenal, though. So I remember, <laughs> I think I remember with Wrexham Arsenal seeing these like mad North Walesian fans like charging on but then yeah walking past Lee Dixon or whoever and start starting a chat with him and you definitely wouldn't fancy it in that situation if you're terrible timing yeah I can't think of a t- less opportune time to speak to Lee Dixon than after he just lost to Wrexham final point on this Nick listener Jack Pierce says I've been involved in just one pitch invasion Craven Cottage after Fulham who I don't support won in the playoffs a few years ago it was a similar vibe to a PTA garden party of a Hammersmith prep school <laughs> yeah. maybe some clubs just lend themselves to pitch invasions yeah. more than others shall we invade do you think <laughs> but the, the, the there, there seemed to be a point in the. I'm, I'm thinking, kind of, at some point in the '90s, where it became expected that even if it was just the last game of the season or something like that, was going to be a pitch invasion. So yeah. there would be a pre-announcement. You know, five minutes before the end of the pitch, it'd say, "We'd like to remind you that uh, entering the playing service is a criminal offence. You know, it's punishable by whatever it is." And the idea was, well, they're gonna come on the pitch. We better discourage them. And then, you know, the more self-aware referees would wait until the ball was over the, the near the tunnel side of the pitch before they blew the whistle, or even just kind of actively encouraging the players to, to you know, to get to get away from the um, imminent marauding crowds. Yeah, and that for me slightly spoils it. That's that's why yeah. I think the pure pitch invasion wasn't one which to, which anyone anticipated. Picking up. Um... Quite a lot so far, Mark, on your on your fondness for the domestic cup competitions, uh, which leads us on to you, your first kind of dislike of football. Talk us through it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm the first person to moan about this, and I do understand the reasons for it, but uh, clubs fielding weakened teams in the cup, basically, is something that saddens me, just because, and of course, yeah, the domestic programme is pretty punishing these days. There are too many games, and all this sort of stuff I do understand. Also, and sometimes it is an opportunity to try you know, younger players. There are various legit reasons why a manager would do this. But I think without wanting to be a sort of teamist here, if you're looking at Liverpool or uh, a team that's involved in European competition, I, I feel like it's a bit more forgivable, although it still annoys me. But it's when you see, and I'm only picking these specimens at random, it's when you see teams like I know, Brighton or West Ham, mid-ranking Premier League teams, resting most of their team, especially if they appear to be relatively safe. If it's a team like 10th or 11th, they're not in the middle of relegation dogged by. They're just basically, they're, just, they're not resting them for anything. They just can't really be asked with it. Um, because I do sort of feel like, because there's not a Champions League place or anything attached to the FA Cup, um, and because that is often seems to be only, all anyone cares about now, it only matters if if there's this like pact that we all care about it. Like those great <laughs> '90s cup upsets or whatever favourite cup upsets you remember were only special because almost all the famous players were playing. These days, there's sometimes upsets, but it turns out Burnley didn't have any of their first team out, and it just diminishes the whole thing basically. And again, I've yeah, I think morally, I feel like. Like remember when Wigan won the cup, for example, mm. or the, the mm. times when teams have actually gone all the way to Wembley, it's it's so worth it for their fans. You're talking about that long after you're talking about that year that we we scraped to safety. And you know, I was once talking to a former pro who said, the "Thing with the FA Cup is if you support, if you play for a team like I don't remember who he played for, Stoke or something it was. These are like mm. you, you got to win four or five games to get to Wembley. So you, you know, collectively, you don't feel like it's worth it." And I was like. <laughs> You wouldn't back yourself to win four games, one of which is at home to like Stanley <laughs> Bridge Celtic. You know, it, it feels as a real defeatism, basically, if you're a big enough club to not even mm. bother because you've only got to get to the fifth round and you're not that mm. far from Wembley. So, yeah, this whole culture of talking about it like the FA Cup is some annoyance that's been grafted onto the scene mm. rather than the oldest thing we have is a peeve of mine. Nick, I mean, think about the discourse when it comes to the FA Cup is that we've reduced it to such vague kind of sentiment that that it's no wonder that so many people are even just bored of the idea let alone the players and and the kind of and the clubs themselves and um, you, you talk about things like 
fans of certain clubs like the mid-ranking Premier League teams that Mark um, referred to there, they, they, they think at the start of the season, they just they refer to things like, oh, we could go on a cup run here, as, as if that's going to save all their worries. It's just this vague idea of a cup run, yeah. a run in the cups, I should say. Yeah, it's 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 the the kind of the the level that football has has reached now, where the, there isn't any actually any prospect of um, you winning this tournament. So the, the the respectable run in the cup is glory enough for you. Mm. It also for for those kind of mid range teams, it also m- manages to be something that somehow combines v- being very small time and having delusions of grandeur because. Your your kind of small time in as much as you're not you know you're not paying attention to this to to this and you're you're uh, resting players for absolutely no reason but also the delusions of grandeur is of being well we have far more important things than this yeah. mere trifle to be worrying about <laughs> so it, <laughs> I, I it makes I'm, them look ridiculous in a number of ways. I, I don't. I mean, this is more superstition, like sentimentality, than science. But I, I, I slightly blame the the advent of semi-finals at Wembley and stuff like mm-hmm. that, just as mm-hmm. chipping away of these. I feel like when the incentive used to be that big day out at Wembley, yeah, maybe for players that was a little bit more of a of a pull, or, or certainly for fans it was something about the the, the last four of the competition being a sort of Wembley series. I, you know, yeah. again, it might have been an old man thing to say, but I feel like somehow it all becomes a bit more. Well, it just reduces the final itself as a as a national event, I think. And I think that's what the FA Cup relies on. It relies on this idea that the nation is downing tools to watch it. That's what I loved when I was a kid. Mm. People in the newsagent being like, right, I'll pop home, get the telly on, get it ready for three o'clock. You, you, obviously, those days have gone a bit, but it still that still does seem a shame to me. Moving on to your, your second uh, palpable dislike of football, tell us what it is. This will sound again like quite a curmudgeonly thing. This is, but I might, I, I, it's fine. Well, I said to you, YouTube, YouTube sequences of, of players doing uh, skills, doing what has become known as techers because of the influence of Soccer AM. But I have to qualify it. I think, that, I think the reason I don't like it, I saw quite a few people on your Twitter talking about these infamous things where clubs have signed a player off the back of one of these in, the, in these <laughs> and that sort of I love that kind of cheap and cheerful side of it my specific thing is I've got a 10 year old son who loves football mm. and the players he tends to idolise inevitably are people like Neymar who obviously is a talented player but encompasses a lot of things that annoy me about football and I think the reason that kids all the kids want to beat them is because they experience football as a series of YouTube montages where someone like Neymar you know, does a treble step over or a rainbow flick or all this business. And mm-hmm. I've seen Neymar play live just once. Brazil played Uruguay in one of these meaningless games they sometimes have uh, over here. So I took right. my took my son and his mate to see this at the Emirates last year. And then okay. it was a friendly, admittedly. But Neymar was just like, you know, wandering all over the pitch, constantly demanding the ball. And then when he got it, just like, you know, doing these sort of party tricks and stuff. And the kids were thrilled by it. And I just had this sense that if we're not careful that generation sees football as um, as a series of tricks and flicks and stuff like that. And again, it's not, I don't, it's not, uh, there's not a place for this sort of finesse, but I worry that there's this cult of personality around certain players where I don't even mind it if it's Messi's greatest goals. Cause I, I, I understand how goals fit into a game, but I suppose my point is half the stuff you see on these YouTube montages don't have any place in an actual match. Three <laughs> seconds after it, you got clattered and quite rightly so. So yeah, I blame YouTube montages for the rise, the like fetishization of these pretty little skills, which as far as I'm concerned, aren't as important as just getting back to cover, cover a winger, that sort of thing. Uh, no, it's a, it's a compelling case, but um, to counter your, your curmudgeonness, first of all, Nick, it, could you argue that it's actually a fairly wholesome thing for a whole new generation of fans to be idolising and following individual players rather than teams. So let's say, for example, that Kylian Mbappe moves from PSG to Manchester United and a whole throng of social media followers then turn their attention to where he's playing next rather than rather than the team he was playing for. Is that a, That's not a terribly tacky way of following football now I think about it, is it? I think it's it's, a, it's probably a, a sort of slightly more emotionally healthy way of uh, following football because you... You don't carry the, the if if like most of us you have settled upon a team very early on in life you then carry the emotional weight of that team for for the rest of your life and mm. that can often prove quite emotionally damaging but if you just <laughs> if you just decide you are a Kylian Mbappe fan you follow his career for fifteen years or however long it lasts and then when he retires you 
find someone else and you follow I think, them. Well, I think probably the case Nick is making is also the reason I don't like it, which is that, like Nick, I, I am saddled with a, a second tier, well, second tier at best so far team, not in Nick's case, but in mine. Basically, I want him to, and already because he was born in North London, uh, I allowed my kids to grow up as an Arsenal fan. So I already feel like he's he's like drawn a better lot than mine. So I, I don't want him to escape the emotional hardship, basically. I feel like it's a cop-out just to support a player. If you extend this phenomenon to maybe one or two more generations, I, I do think it probably has some mileage in it. Because if you think in, in 20 years' time, they say, well, who do you support? Well, um, uh, well I, support, I support Neymar or I support Mbappe. <laughs> uh, what is that? Oh, my, my dad was a huge Mbappe fan. Uh, he, was, he was from Mbappe, actually. He was, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've not got the I've not got an Mbappe accent, but my granddad. Has been. <laughs> um, finally, we turn to social media for your final palpable dislike of the beautiful game. What's your beef here? Well, this again is is a fairly you know is an understandable modern problem. It's basically what I said to you was uh, <laughs> over overuse of social media of clubs overactive social media accounts on, in football clubs, and again it has to be qualified this because obviously. We all live on Twitter to some extent now. And Bristol City had a weird moment in the Twitter spotlight because of that, these goal gifts a couple of years ago. In that same year that we went on a cup run, got to the semi-finals, all this, there was a weird period for a fan of a relatively unglamorous club where not only did we have loads of hype off Guardiola and stuff like that, but almost at the same time, everyone started sharing uh, these goal-scorer gifts. And in fact, when I went to the, the training ground, which was an incredible day as it was, they had a little green screen set up there and I got the impression a fair bit of training session went into recording the celebrations these days. And that is great. Like I was initially opposed to that because when the first couple of times there was a, a gif of a guy doing something funny, I thought we're going to be a laughing stock here, but I was absolutely wrong. It became a really celebrated thing and it was copied by a lot of other clubs. So fair play. What I'm talking about is, and again, I don't even blame social media managers because they've got, I expect a contract where you've got to do 20 a day or something but it's these things so well, someone gave a good example on your Twitter they were a Man United fan they said throughout the summer we, as we weren't siding Jane and, uh, Sancho you'd instead get these tweets going 10 years ago today Rooney uh, Rooney's hat trick it's that stuff it's this thing where rather than just say nothing <laughs> maintain dignified science your club is in your ear the whole time going uh, got Peterborough at the weekend anyone remember this trip to Peterborough <laughs> 17 years ago actually <laughs> That's not a good example. I don't even mind it if it's a, a nostalgic goal or like a retro, because it is fun to think, oh, yeah, I was at that game. It's more when it's like, who remembers when this guy signed seven years ago? Or just like things like after a 1-1 draw, just like, all right, describe that game with an emoji or, or, or nine words. Stuff which is just like, well, I don't really want to. <laughs> Do you suspect that we're kind of, we're going into a kind of era of kind of innocent smoothification of um, club social media output. I, I feel like there's there's a level it gets to where it stops being engaging, Nick, and it actually starts becoming insulting the intellectual capacity of their of their followers. Yeah, the, 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 there's one that um, I think this is one that Forest do quite a lot, where they wish happy birthday to former players, and it's not if it was if they just kind of restricted it to you know the European Cup winning team or Stan Collymore or something like that then it would be fine but it's like happy birthday to former Forest player Terry Wilson who was a kind of jobbing centre half in the early <laughs> in the early 90s and you kind of think I mean this is quite nice but it, why, why why it feels like you've kind of very much run out of ideas for your social media content at this stage like you say Adam it's, it is something to do with that innocent smoothie thing of like being your mate too much like obviously yeah, I don't want to be uh, you know, I, I like to think I've, we've all got a nice, friendly relationship with our football clubs at least some of the time. But you don't exactly want to be mates. I like being talked at by the club a bit. I would, I'd like it to be like attention, people of Bristol, people of South Bristol. We have signed this central defender. Here is what you should think. I don't want it to be like, oh, got a signing coming up. Who would you like it to be? Uh, describe <laughs> you like it point. in a gif or this sort of thing. I'm like, I don't want. To, I'm not here to play games with you. I don't want like just you know. I you you want to look up to your club as a fountain of wisdom rather than being like yeah. Guys, it's a very good point. Yeah. I don't want to be my club's mate. I've never yeah. thought of it like that, but that pretty much sums it up very yeah, well. Mates, I'm, um, I'm a follower. I'm like an acolyte, and, and fun. Yeah. I, I don't want to be treated disrespectfully, but I also I don't want them to be like chummy, giving me bits of gossip. Which is why I don't like. <laughs> a, I think that asking fans for their six-word review of a game is obviously fraught with danger. <laughs> mm. um, but also, I just feel it's a bit like 
no, I'll read the report on your website. Don't start asking me to write the report. But it's, uh, the, the, um, the other thing of that is that, that when teams go, all right, we've got um, you know we've got Bristol City at home today. Who do you think should be in the team? There's a sort of <laughs> yeah, there's kind of Would implication. Yeah, it's a a sort of implication that the the social media manager is going to get his phone and kind of sidle up to the manager and go, look, there's a lot of people who think you should be playing this guy at left back today. What do you Uh, reckon? Yeah, and, you know, I think that does breed a culture where, sure enough, when the team is announced, you get dozens of people going, what a load of shit. You know, I I feel like, you know, let the fans have a say, but don't ask us on everything because loads of us don't know what we're doing. I I think you're right. I think think perhaps we're indulging, social media kind of outlets for football clubs are indulging fans too much. I think there should be, there should still be an element of tough shit. This is what you're (laughs) getting, you know, by hook or by crook. We've lost 5-0. The players arguably tried their best. There's nothing you can do about it and we're not giving you your money back. Fuck off. I love that. That's what they should do. I'd love if just one time a a club did tweet out going, well, like it or not, that's that's the team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, yeah no, nothing we could do. Um, all, uh, yeah, the, we go again. You'd get sacked, but if you had the balls to tweet out the starting team going, right, is the team, you're not going <laughs> to like it, but uh, you're not the manager, are you? <laughs> yeah, social media go, manager goes rogue and say, we'll be honest, we haven't got a clue what this one's about. If you if you think you know what the formation is, then, you know, you fill your boots. Yeah, don't, but... don't put the players in formation. Don't even tell the fans what formation they're playing. Absolutely no idea. Absolutely one, no idea. There was one last year where a social media manager, a smallish club like Morecambe or someone, did a, a tweet going, that's it, full-time, 6-0. And that's the most embarrassing performance I've ever seen. And it was really refreshing, but I imagine he yes. would lose his job quite soon after that. Uh, but you never know. That was probably some sort of postmodern um, uh, marketing strategy as well. It was so probably uh, for if clicks. you look at it, it was very cynically. decided at half time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and a cynical perspective is the only way for uh, Mesut Harland Dix to survive as a format. Well, that was the debut for that format. Um, I think it's a good Thanks, format. Mark. I enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for being the pilot for it, uh, taking us into the the foggy unknown um, of of Meza Harland Dix's future. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for co-piloting this with me today. I've, I've learned a lot about uh, pitch invasions for a start. Um, this is exactly the sort of thing we should be dissecting. Mark, you've got a book out, Contacts. Sounds like a very cheerful affair. <laughs> it is about a man's suicide attempt, yeah, but it's uh, if you can look beyond that, there are quite a lot of jokes in it as well. In fact, it's quite <laughs> lighthearted, but it is a reasonably sobering... Uh, premise yeah glad to hear it it's about a guy who started to feel that he doesn't want to do the wet Wednesdays in Stoke essentially (laughs) I I feel sad for him because he's he's only got 184 contacts in his phone is is that the average amount how did you arrive at that figure I think the average is probably more than that but he has drifted away from a lot of people in the book so Mm. that's probably on the low side yeah he's not a very communicative guy I don't know how many you've actually got it'll be more than that probably won't it I don't know because it all comes down to whether you save them on your sim or on your phone and then you change your phone it's it's very complex there's a lot of politics I mean, I'm sure you cover this in the book. I mean, I don't, <laughs> yeah. want, to give them, I don't want to give away the ending of the book. Thrilling Actually, chapter. yes, he saved them all on his team. It's fine. Uh, but yes, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this and much appreciated. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers.